Welcome to Talent Hub Talk. I am Ben Duncan, and this is a place where prominent and inspirational figures from both the local ANZ and global Salesforce Ohana share their stories. Today, I'm joined by Dylan McGough O'Reilly. He's a UK-based Salesforce recruiter and recruitment business owner. I've been connected with Dylan for a while, and we've helped each other with a few referrals over the years, so it's great to have him on the show. We discuss the UK and European Salesforce markets, covering contract to permanent vacancy splits, in-demand skill sets, hiring hubs, team sizes, and visas. We also cover Dylan's recruitment business, We Engage Group, and why they are passionate about working with certain companies and giving back. I hope you enjoy the episode. Tired of wasting time on tedious processes? Try FormAssembly, the secure, all-in-one Salesforce-connected data collection platform. FormAssembly helps customers streamline and automate data collection processes, enabling organizations in all industries to save an average of 55 hours each week on manual data entry. Using the platform's new workflow builder, non-technical users can map entire data collection workflows, eliminate inefficient processes, and make better, faster decisions, all without code or help from IT. Visit www.formassembly.com forward slash talent hub to learn more about the number one enterprise data collection platform for Salesforce. Dylan, thank you very much for joining us. Ben, thanks for having me. I hear you're in the middle of a heatwave in London as well, so yeah, I feel for you. Indeed. Thank you. I appreciate it. Maybe be record numbers either today or tomorrow, potentially 38 today, at 39 degrees, 40 degrees tomorrow. So wish me good luck. <laughs> ouch, ouch. Well, look, um, we've got a lot to talk about today. I've never had someone from the, the UK recruitment market on the podcast. I've had people from the US, I think just the US actually. So keen to hear a bit more about what's happening in both the UK and Europe and, and explore the Salesforce market in, in that part of the world. But just to set the scene for anyone that might not know you or might not have spoken to you before, you obviously own your own business now, we'll cover that. But how did you get into recruitment and how did you get into Salesforce recruitment more specifically? Yeah, like everybody, I didn't wake up and dream of being in recruitment. Did you not? So I was doing, no, unfortunately not. <laughs> it wasn't my burning desire as a child. <laughs> I was doing university and during my finals, I started to just apply for jobs randomly. And I was actually trying to get into HR and a rec rec got in touch with me and pitched me this amazing company in the Northwest. And I was like, oh, this sounds fantastic. And then I went for an interview, found out it was recruitment and just literally fell into a company in the Northwest. But I actually nearly didn't end up in Salesforce. The company done Salesforce and NHS IT recruitment. And I had two managers, great people at the time, Scott McGowan and Dan McLennan, both wanted to hire me. And thankfully, Dan managed to persuade me to join his team. And that's how I ended up in Salesforce recruitment eight years ago. Well, I mean, I think you went down the right path, but you would have been busy either way over the last few years with everything that's gone on, especially in the NHS world. Yeah. But yeah, and you mentioned rec to recs For anyone that's not listening to this, there are actually people that recruit recruiters, which is a rec to recs that they just specialize in finding recruiters for jobs, which not a lot of people probably know outside of the recruitment world. It's true. It's like inception almost. It's very bizarre. That's it. That's it. So uh, you've recently um, moved and set up your own business, which is is awesome. Um, I see a lot of the stuff you guys are doing, which sounds amazing, not just your typical recruitment company. But you're also not just doing pure Salesforce, right? I think you might be, I'm not sure, but your your business does broader than just Salesforce. 
I only know the Salesforce market. So are other technologies, other areas um, growing as fast in demand as much as Salesforce are right now? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point, actually. So we do a lot of engineering, so like full stack front end, back end and Salesforce. And in short, I'd say yes, because it's slightly different in the sense that most customers, when they implement Salesforce, unless they're hiring like a center of excellence, they're not going to really mass volume hire in Salesforce. They're not going to hire 10, 20 engineers like Salesforce developers. Whereas the companies that we work with outside of Salesforce, they might be hiring in one year, 50 engineers, for example. So the demand is huge in those areas. But just like Salesforce, heavily candidate short right now. So I'd say probably a little bit more in demand, but slightly different in the growth areas that Salesforce would have. Yeah, it's interesting. Like I sometimes see I've got some um, some connections on LinkedIn that recruit outside of Salesforce, like recruit software engineers or, or leadership in the engineering space. And sometimes I'll see the salaries and it's like head of engineering and the salary is actually less than I'll be recruiting for a Salesforce developer role. And I'm like, how is this a thing? Like, How's a Salesforce developer being paid more than the head of engineering in Sydney? And it's not always the case, right? There are roles. But is it kind of like that there? Like, do you see Salesforce developers earning so much more than an engineer in other areas? I think Oz and the American markets are maybe more inflated as a difference for Salesforce talent. I think London and the UK seems to be on par average. Like a software engineer that we'd be hiring might be like 90 grand. And then a Salesforce engineer might be getting 90 grand in London. Europe is probably slightly different. But I'd say it's more even on this side of the pond. But then if we break out to like, America or where you are, I've seen it myself again online that there's a vast difference for the Salesforce talent. Yeah. And what's the hardest role to fill for you then in the Salesforce world right now? Where is the demand? I'd say the obvious one will always be because it's either contract heavy or just so candidate short. It's either going to be a really solid Salesforce developer or maybe the architects as well. I think architects are becoming more and more in demand, especially I think you've seen it yourself as Salesforce are acquiring a lot of architects in-house, mm-hmm. which is causing other partners to then have a candidate shortage with architects like solution architects, technical architects, or even your enterprise architects. So I think those really technical skills have dominated the space for the last half a decade plus that I've been in the ecosystem. And developers and architects really outweigh the other. Do you see many, like we, we don't see that many mid-level developers like everyone seems to be they start as a junior then immediately they're a senior there's this void where anyone will admit to being a mid-level and at the moment we kind of see a lot of entry-level people that are coming into the market through different programs that are looking to learn but there's a huge void in anyone you know we don't see that many people coming from other um, engineering principles and, and backgrounds into Salesforce the odd person and there's just a void of talent coming in at that senior level is that the same there there's just like this massive gap of people with experience yeah, that's a great point, actually. I think it's quite subjective, and this is where candidates and clients, like they say that we want mid-level, but what does mid-level quantify as? Like, how do you quantify or qualify that? Yeah, You see people on the job specs, they'll say, oh, I want somebody with four years' experience, and that makes them mid-level. But then you might have somebody who's been doing it for two years and regard themselves as mid-level. So you've got this like mismanagement in terms of expectations to actual reality. So, yeah, I've definitely seen the same. I think what happens, and it's probably driven because the candidate market's so short is your juniors or your really early level engineers are suddenly being offered salaries that are a lot more higher than like a mid-level so instantly they kind of forego that middle layer of development if we're going to qualify senior mid and junior and that's probably caused that is people are able to command higher salaries so therefore they feel like they're already bigger than a Mm mid-level and they've done two years experience and now they're like i'm a senior yeah 
Yeah, it's true. And do you, over here in Australia, the contract market's growing. And I think, um, you know, historically, my ratios would be more like 80% permanent, 20 contract, some years even 90 to 10. More recently, it's been more like 70, 30, still more permanent work, more permanent roles in the market, but an increasing contractor market. And like you said, that is really driven by the technical role. So contract developers, architects, we don't see that many contract admins. We see like some functional consultant contract roles, but definitely more heavily weighted to the technical roles. So is that similar there? Like, And looking broader than just um, the UK as well in the European markets, is it heavy contract or still predominantly perm? I think there's always going to be similar balance to what you just said there, like probably 70% perm, 30% contract. But I think that's slightly changed now, especially if we're going to look at the UK compared to Europe. I think the UK has seen a slight um, decrease in contractors due to legislation and, and Brexit and all these other issues. But then in Europe, we've actually seen that grow where more resources are hiring contractors in Europe because I suppose the pandemic's accelerated this remote access to candidates and people being able to work more freely. So that's enabled companies to hire contractors from other countries who may be just as talented as they could in in London or Germany or the Netherlands. And suddenly you're getting them at a cheaper price, but you can still contract them for project work. So I think in Europe, we've seen uptake in contractors because, again, ease of access to talent, Mm -hmm. whereas, again, UK and London's definitely still perm, perm heavy. And uh, talking of Europe, like other hubs, obviously, I imagine London is the hub in the UK for talent opportunity. You know, I know people in like Berlin and Amsterdam and I hear of the other locations where there seems to be more talent. But is that where you're seeing most of the demand in those kind of cities? Yeah, definitely. I think if you look at your main cities, London will always be the mecca, shall we say, for the UK. But I think now, again, because of um, the pandemic, we've got more more people hiring maybe Manchester or Newcastle or other of the bigger cities. But then in Europe, the main hubs are definitely Germany, the Netherlands, the main cities in Germany, like Munich or Berlin and then Amsterdam. But another one that I've seen as a, a bit of a growth market is France and Paris. That seems to be a slot. There's more demand for talent there, but it's super candidate short. So that seems to be a hidden hub of talent, as well as maybe your Mediterranean countries like Spain or Portugal seem to be more developers coming through over there, which is where a lot of people tap into those markets for contractors. Yeah, nice. And for a recruiter, like I typically deal in one language, right? So everyone that is in Australia is expected to have a reasonable level of English as their language if they're working on a project or being employed. Obviously, you've got your then if you're dealing cross border and looking at, you know, France and Um, Do you find that a lot of the projects are communicated in English or are you having to try and as best you can communicate with people that might not speak English? Thankfully, it's primarily English. That seems to be the biggest uh, focus. I think it's it's the business language of the world, thankfully. If you look at pre-pandemic, actually, I think in Germany, let's look at Germany. I think there was more of an expectation to have German speakers or, or people who are very proficient in business Germany. Whereas now our customers that I work with seem to have a little bit more of a a relaxed approach to can they speak the native tongue and are they able to communicate in English? Again, this probably looks at their accessing talent geographically distributed. So as long as everyone communicate in English, that gives them that baseline to be able to move projects forward, communicate more effectively and work remotely as well. 
One thing I've seen growing here is like the specialisms, right? Yeah, I, I think all partners typically would say they specialize in like one industry over another, or they have a few, like it might be government, financial services, or, yeah. you know, but now we're starting to see a few partners that specialize in industry, like verticals and, and have that kind of, you know, with velocity industries, that whole focus, but also some partners now being like CPQ specialists, or, you know, like focus it, like obviously, you've got ones that just do marketing cloud, because it's a, a different um, skill set altogether, obviously, a different platform but is that a big thing over there because i think the uk we're behind the us in terms of how things are structured and how things emerge so has that been something that you've seen emerge there over the years that partners will really focus in on a couple of products or you know have deep business expertise in the service stream or cbq or you know field service lightning as an example yeah, I definitely think it's becoming more apparent. I was actually speaking to a smaller partner recently who were like starting their journey. And I think if you're small and nimble, you want to maybe look at multiple specialisms because you need to find your niche. But it seems to be the case that partners become very strong in one particular either product or core verticals. And then they double down on that and they focus on that because if you've got maybe five to 10 successful implementations within CPQ, naturally AEs and customers are going to want to work with you because you've got a proven track record. So I think if you're early in your inception, there seems to be a little bit more fluidity to it. Whereas as they start to scale and grow the business, it makes sense for those partners to focus on what they're good at and play to their strengths and then maybe in the future diversify. But I think it makes commercial sense to really become an expert in a field or a particular industry or a particular vertical because that way they can really become famous for that. And then the AEs will naturally want to work with them more, vice versa. When they're speaking to customers, they can create a pitch and they can actually tell them about the implementation that they've done, delivered on time, executed in the right budget. So I definitely think people are becoming more specialised, but there's still an area where people will maybe be a little bit more generic. But I'd say that's probably your more SMB to early partners that tend to do that. And do you, obviously, the big partners, you've got like, the, you know, the Accentures, the, the PwCs, KPMGs, Deloitte, they're everywhere, right? So they work cross-border, they would have big teams in Europe, and they'd have large programs. But do you see a lot of that cross-border work in the smaller end of town? Like, would some of your clients have teams in the UK, but then also Germany? Or do they tend to focus in on one one area? They tend to focus in one area right now. I think some of the more mid-sized consultancies are starting to branch out into other territories whereas like London because it's so accessible to Europe it makes sense to maybe try and target some customers in Germany I work with um, multinational companies who maybe have a, a hub in Europe so I think it's becoming more possible but it still tends to be that people are staying in the lane like if they have a consultancy in Germany they tend to work with companies in the DAC market if it's a British business it tends to be UK and I but I've seen a slight change in that with a couple of partners who have started to go what we'd call like near shore and start going further afield a little bit. It's definitely one that's starting to grow, shall we say. And you mentioned, obviously, there's more remote work now, which obviously there is everywhere due to what we've been through over the last few years. But did you see much of that kind of remote work prior to COVID? And like, is it easy for now companies to hire internationally like and, and go external for those skill sets that they can't find locally? Or is it still a pain to go through that process? I think to answer that, I'd have to do it in two segments. So I'd have to go UK and I first and then um, Europe second. I think for me in the UK, so I've worked the UK market for eight years. Remote working was almost like taboo, shall we say, pre-pandemic. And we had a couple of customers who maybe did adopt it. But that's been a massive change. Obviously, the pandemic's accelerated that, that change of behaviours. 
But there's one partner in particular who never hired remotely pre-pandemic, and now they're a fully remote business in the UK. Like All their team operate remotely. So we've seen a huge uptake in that. And as a result, instead of people hiring more internationally, they're able to hire more geographically in the UK. So they're able to tap into their talent pools of like your Newcastles, for example, or even um, Wales seems to be some people that work remotely. So it's allowed that in the UK. In terms of hiring permanent in the UK, sponsorship's still a big blocker there, especially now given the change in, in Brexit and stuff. But sponsorship will always be a difficulty unless the customer has the license in the UK. Whereas on the flip side, if we look into Europe, we have something called the blue card over there, which is a lot easier to obtain. And there's a lot less legislation to achieve that. And companies don't need to have a sponsorship license to do that. So what I found in Europe is those businesses, even pre-pandemic, were very good and luckily enough able to access international talent and bring them to the native country that we're working in and get that sponsorship much, much easier. So Europe's a lot more free movement with talent whereas London and the UK is still a lot more rigid given the sponsorship. So have you seen a lot of people like leaving the UK market, people that would have been there prior to Brexit that, you know, for whatever reason might have wanted to move or might not be able to stay in the UK any longer? Like, Has the UK actually lost talent from the pool of um, resources based on Brexit? Obviously, smart viewpoint, but I'd say, yes, there's definitely been a change. I know quite a few candidates who maybe from Spain or from different areas of, of Europe have decided that they wanted to go back home, they didn't want to be in the UK anymore, and which is a bit of a shame, really. But there's definitely been a slight decrease in international talent going back home, especially if, let's say, they wanted to start a family or anything like that. It makes sense to go back home. So it's definitely been a change. It's probably made the UK market a little bit more competitive for talent as well, because equally in the past, you could go into Europe and get talent to move over a lot, lot easier, whereas now you've lost that ability. So... The, the landscape in the UK is definitely becoming more competitive. Mm-hmm. And is the demand really driven through partners? Like here, most, I wouldn't want to say a percentage of the roles in the market, but you know, a lot of the work is with partners and you'll get the odd customer that might have like a 50-person team, but that's like an, a completely out of the blue, you know, random. The average team would probably be anything from one to three. You get some that might have 10, but like if you want critical mass and, and as a recruiter, obviously you want customers that are going to hire regularly. So naturally you go to the partners because they're constantly looking to grow. I imagine there's the, you would have some bigger companies in the UK, but where perhaps you know they might have a presence across Europe talking end customer rather than consulting. So do you see end customers hiring you know, big teams, not back to your point on the original question around software engineers, maybe not 50 a year, right? But like having teams of kind of 50 Salesforce professionals, or is that quite rare as well there? That's definitely rare. It's, it seems that like there's a similarity there in the markets. You get a couple of more customers now who may be hiring like teams of up to 10, and that would be uh, cross-functional teams of so developers, admins, BAs, PMs. But it's a rare anomaly to find regular customers who are hiring for mass. Um, so the partners definitely still hold that in terms of regular hires and constantly hiring at a strong cadence. The partners seem to dominate that space massively. Mm-hmm. And just on the point you mentioned as well, going back to the visa thing. So the UK, obviously with Brexit, it's a lot more difficult, but are there still options? Like, Do you see some people coming into the market with sponsorship? Yeah, there's definitely some. No one is as much as you might think, I guess, because I don't know the whole legislation off the top of my head. But as a company, you have to have a sponsorship license to be able to put a position on a sponsorship um, and there's loads of different things that in order to apply for that but there's been some more customers in the last couple of years that I've worked with that I've seen externally who have got that license but it's it's not nowhere near as many as you'd think like it's still super difficult to get 
sponsorship role. I've been doing sales recruitment for eight years. And if we take away some of the bigger partners who have got sponsorship licenses and stuff, if you're looking at maybe end customers and some of these smaller partners, I could probably count on my hands and toes how many people I've managed to get sponsorship in the last eight years. Yeah, I'm the same. And I think people expect in Australia because, you know, a lot of the talent in the market here has come from overseas. Like, you know, there are obviously Australian Salesforce professionals, but in a lot of the companies, they'll be dominated by people that, you know, were born in the UK, India, Pakistan, um, the US in some cases, like a lot of the talent has come from overseas. But there are so few companies here now that will sponsor and that's because of cost and yeah. time and the process. It's quite a heavy, um, heavy process to go through. So people think that you can get sponsored quite easily here because a lot of people have. But again, I've probably placed like under five people on sponsorship in the last seven or eight years. My perception was the same. I thought because of the Australian way of work and I presumed that it was quite sponsorship heavy, I thought it'd be quite a lot easier to get that. Yeah, no, I think it's just the time it takes like people. And that's why it's a real problem because consulting partners are just poaching from others, right? If they need senior talent, they're taking people. And you mentioned the point about Salesforce hiring people from partners. Like it's just a bit of a vicious circle, right? Especially when no new talent yes. has been coming into the market here over the last few years because of COVID. But yeah, it's quite rare now for me to speak to someone that's on a visa. Historically, I would speak to people that were on visas that had been high. They might have been working for a partner overseas and then that partner brings them onto a project locally. But actually like getting a job with a company that will offer you a visa that you've never worked for before is quite difficult and also doesn't happen that often in my experience. Yeah, it's the exact same here, like super similar here. So your business, I like I said, you're not just the typical recruitment company, all about profit and um, and numbers and bums on seats. I like what you guys are doing around, uh, you know, the 1% pledge and you're a certified B Corp business now, I believe. Not certified yet. That's next year. Almost. Almost. We're at the pending stage, which is a pre-12 month trading. Would they qualify if they were trading for two years? Yes, they would. So we're at this pending stage. So there's a lot of hard work over the next 12 months, but that's the next goal is to get that fully fledged B Corp status. So why does that all matter to you? Because like I said, it's not that's not what every recruitment company does, right? When typically True. companies set up their business plan, it's about you know how much revenue we can make, how much profit, how many people we can hire, all of these things. So why is that important to you and Thomas, your business partner? I guess for us, me and Thomas, our background, uh, we started in the Salesforce ecosystem. So we've always been influenced by Salesforce one, one way or the other. So when, when I started up, we engaged group from inception, Pledge 1% was something I wanted to commit to. I, I really love, I thought, I think the whole philosophy behind it is just great so that was like underpinning it but we always wanted to build a business that was going to give back and um funnily enough mark benioff the god of our industry um he has a saying which is as businesses we can be financially successful and at the same time make the world a better place and for me that was just something that stuck true and i remember reading that when i read his book many years ago so we always knew we wanted to underpin similar ethos to salesforce why can't we make this really successful business have philanthropy underpinning everything so i guess benioff kind of inspired it from years and years ago and that enabled us to do it and then from there like it organically grew like we knew we wanted to build a business that was only focused around working with companies who, who were doing something positive for the planet of people and then naturally sales was being the thing that i've done for nearly a decade now all the customers that we work with nine times out of ten hire salesforce as well so we've got the cadence of helping them grow their product teams and really have an impact on the world I can help them with sales just as well. And then be between all the, the bottom line is between it all, we can give back at the same time. So like we don't at profit, we don't at time. 
I do free hires for people. I think there's more to just making money. I saw today you posted one. Yeah, she, she's wicked as well. I'll, we'll find out by the time we post this on live and whether she gets a job. But that's the big thing is that we can do so much with our job, right? We can obviously make money. Like, don't get me wrong, we have to make money on building a business, but we can also help people and, and help others achieve and pay it forward. So we engage. It's all underpinned by purpose and giving back being at the first thing that we do, profit being secondary. And like that's awesome. And I recruited in the UK, not in Salesforce, but I recruited in other. And I know I've always said to my wife and to um, like people I know here, like if I had to go back to the UK, I couldn't do recruitment. <laughs> I was like, I just couldn't put myself through it again. Like it's so much like there, it's just different, right? It's like, I think there's so much competition. Mm. When I came here, you, you get this kind of like trust with people that, you know, there's a true relationship where people are like, you're not like seen as, when I was in the UK, it was like recruiters were like hung up on all the time. And I think yeah, I've probably yeah. been hung up on once in like 12 years here. Like it just doesn't happen. Oh, wow. Yeah. Like it's just people see you as a service provider and they feel they can get value and there's some sort of relationship. But I guess when you're doing things like you're doing and, and doing them for the right reasons, you're not doing it because it's like, you know, just to, to be seen to be doing it. Like you truly believe in it. And I think that comes across when people communicate with you and that must put you in a different place with like customers and candidates. They must have this experience when they work with We Engage that you wouldn't just get from a typical recruitment company. Yeah, and I definitely agree with that. I think people buy into it because it's authentic. It's not like I'm, I'm saying it for the sake of saying it and it's not like I'm sat here just making phone calls all day. Like we, we try and really operate on a people first business. So it's funny you mentioned the UK market being so vastly different because I think it's such a mature ecosystem in, in the UK. You've got thousands, hundreds of thousands of recruitment companies now. I'd say Germany might be similar then to the Australian market where it's a real value add, like people really respect the profession because mm -hmm. it's less mature and there's less competition and stuff. But um, yeah, because of what we're doing and why we're doing it, people naturally want to work with us, which is the lovely thing to do. And it also allows me to walk away from business, which is actually quite rewarding because historically, when you're an agency side, you take any business because you've got a target over your head and you want to hit it. Whereas now I can be a lot more focused on if it doesn't match the values that we're operating in. People that I'm going to place, because fundamentally we're changing people's lives. Like they're the people who are moving, not you and I. So I want to make sure that the environments that I'm putting them in stay true to our values, which is all around, again, being a better business and paying it forward. Yeah, nice, nice. Well, amazing. And I'm keen to obviously stay on top of the journey and, and keep checking in along the way and see how, how you go towards the B Corp and, and things like that. But for anyone that might not be connected to you already or wants to reach out and ask any questions about you or the business, where's the best place to find you? LinkedIn. LinkedIn's definitely. My mobile number's on there as well. Uh, that could end up shooting me in the foot. <laughs> but yeah, they, they, can, <laughs> they can get in touch with me on, on LinkedIn and then we can obviously chat on there. I use WhatsApp. Yeah, nice. Well, look, thanks so much. And I know you've got a date with the tube now in 40 degrees, and that's going to be a pleasure. So uh, really you. appreciate your time. Really good to chat. Cheers, Ben. Lovely to meet you as well. Thank you so much, buddy. Thank you. So that's a wrap for this week's episode. And thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the chat. And if you did, please make sure you have subscribed for future episodes that are coming through. I would also be very grateful if you would consider leaving a review on your chosen podcast platform as five-star reviews will help us to reach more trailblazers from across the world. I look forward to sharing another episode with you soon, and thanks again.